Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I am joined by my partners in crime, Beverly Lee and Stephanie Ellis. And today we are joined by uh, the amazing Lauren R.H. Bruce of, uh, and I totally forgot the name of her website that I was just on. What, okay, so how about uh, Lauren? Tell us, tell us about yourself. Hello, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Um, so I'm Lauren, but people may know me instead as the Gothic Bookworm, um, which is where I am on all my socials and everything. Um, so I'm a PhD student and I focus on mummies in the 19th century and their treatment. So I do a lot of mummy unrolling parties. I don't personally do them, I just research them. And on mummy brown paint and how they were perceived during museums and in homes and as souvenirs and things like that. But the other half of me, I am a gothic and horror journalist and I love book reviewing and book promoting as well. I love seeking out new authors and interviewing people. And I really love to chat to the writers behind the story. So this is a real treat for me to be chatting to you guys today. <laughs> um, it's a real treat for us too. And quite honestly, um, knowing where to start with you is the harder part of this equation. It's like, wow, so many layers. Oh, I love your headphones. Oh, thank you. We're matching. <laughs> um, so uh, you have a fascination with um, the human body through time, it seems, mm -hmm. um, which is a fascinating subject to me, too. Um, and uh, I sleep with the History Channel on, so you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm packing a lot of this knowledge in my brain while I sleep. But uh, tell us a little bit about how that got started. Um. It's kind of an odd one in a way. I've always had a fascination with bodies. So I originally started out researching, uh, my academic career was in law and ethics and I really got really interested in medical ethics especially. So that's what I specialized in. Um, but after that, instead of wanting to go down that route, I wanted to do something that was a bit different. So I decided to go down the route of looking at Egyptian mummies. It was always a fascination to me. And it was really during when I was looking at medical ethics that I discovered that well, what happens to bodies that are, we already know and have been stolen um, and it led me to mummies in museums and I didn't realise how many mummies in museums were actually taken illegally I didn't realise that this happened in the 19th century and as soon as I realised that a lot of the Victorians were to blame that was it um, <laughs> so I went down that route I decided to take a Masters in Humanities so I could then pursue a PhD trying to find all I could on how we smuggled mummies back to Britain. <laughs> you mentioned that some of these mummies are in private houses. Mm. How many private houses did you sort of come across with mummies on display? And what's your view on that? Because it looks as though we've disconnected them from actually being a person. Once upon mm. a time, they were, you know, you wouldn't stand, I don't know, your dead parent or grandparents in the corner but that was somebody's parent. Why do you think there's this mm. disconnect? And how many did you find? I found a hell of a lot more than I was anticipating. <laughs> and I still haven't finished my research. It's kind of taken over one of my thesis chapters because I didn't realise how many there were. Um, I've actually only just discovered recently, uh, very near me, that there is a possibility of a mummy still 
there i can't say an awful lot because i'm trying to work with a couple of surveyors on seeking out if we can dig it up but the only thing that i can say from that is i didn't realize how close to home it was um i think an interesting one I really love adventure fiction as well, and I like the gothic adventure uh, fiction. So I was reading King Solomon's Mines, and I love H. Ryder Haggard. And then I came across the fact that he omits it in his uh, biography, autobiography, but he actually did own a mummy once in his library, and he got so scared of it, it had to be removed from the house because he thought it was cursed. And that was a real big thing in the Victorian era, especially. They were seen as the ultimate souvenir. It was illegal to take them back, but they still did. They found a way to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, money, money can make anything happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was definitely the upper middle class who were getting uh-huh. these mummies back into their homes and displaying them for all to see. It wasn't a secret. Yeah. What's the strangest place that you found one of these mummies to be on display? Um, Only recently, just because I was looking into it from my friend Emmett Jackson, who's working on Irish Egyptology. He was telling me about the rumour of a mummy at Trinity College Dublin. And when I looked into it, it turns out that in the basement of the anatomy museum in the library cupboard, they found a mummy. It's yeah I just I think it was just I don't know if it's because they were so old or so far removed from the Victorian society especially and even now they're so far removed from our own society that maybe there is some disconnect especially when we go into museums it's not unusual to see a mummy even though it's a dead body behind the glass yeah. and I think we kind of see it more as a perhaps souvenirial commodity at some point that rather than a human I don't know and it's one of the things I do ask people but I think there's a really big conversation about it at the moment which is fantastic but when people always ask me do you think mummies should be in museums I think maybe that question's a bit late because Uh if if we were to take them out of museums where are they going to go are we just going to put them in a store cupboard so that they become a past exhibit what's going to happen to them and these are things I think really need to be Mm -hmm. spoken about by the higher authorities um so yeah it's it's a really interesting one and I could talk about mummies all day long (laughs) it's fascinating that they going back to what uh, Steph had mentioned I mean really the people who were as she said you know standing them in the corners um they also were people who took death photographs and um you know had staged their loved ones bodies in their parlors after they died and you know for you know the mourning period and whatnot so i mean they kind of had a morbid outlook mm. on death anyway, you know, because I can't perfectly see myself taking my my stillborn infant and putting them in the mother's arms to take a picture, you know. Mm. <laughs> so it they seemed were like very, yeah, they were very morbid kind of community. They, they were obsessed mm-hmm. with death as much as the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with life. I think yeah. um, I it's no surprise that we get some of the best gothic fiction we ever have out of that era i think it was all around them they were obsessed and because of that we got dracula and frankenstein and (laughs) do you think that that obsession with death is partly because they were exploring what was beyond death as well it was the time of sort of spiritualists and all the seances yes i know there are a lot of con men and con women at the time but there's that 
curiosity there was almost a need wasn't there to see what was beyond yeah I think so it's one of those where there was a lot of ghost stories and I think it scared a lot of people because there was a huge spirit, uh, spiritualist movement back then um so H. Ryder Haggard was friends with Rudyard Kipling and his sister was a medium and Haggard actually failed his exams to uh, for the British army he didn't even take the foreign office ones because he was too distracted by ghosts and spiritualism in London and he said oh I understand that a lot of it's kind of fake but I think that there's a ring of truth to it so I'm going to still attend these things he was invited to the ghost club it was a huge movement and all the big wigs were going to be there <laughs> I mean the, the Victorians were, pro were probably so you know into death because it was all around them wasn't it I mean it, it wasn't unknown for people to have eight or ten children and two-thirds of them not make it past toddler stage so they had to embrace it in a way didn't they because it was part of their everyday life yeah, and I mean, they even had the Anatomy Act uh, passed in 1832 as well, because too many people were getting dug up and uh, used as cadavers for dissection mm -hmm. and for learning. His Susie Lennox is great uh, for that. She's uh, I'm working with her on something at the moment. Um, but just on how the different perceptions of kind of grave digging and grave robbing were happening at the time. And she's kind of opened my eyes to why there were cages on certain graves. Some of them were because of vampires, some of them because they didn't want people to dig them up after death. There was a very big um, kind of death movement happening at the time and lots of things coinciding with each other. Um, I mean, 18... 32 it was only a couple of years before that Frankenstein was published as well so everything kind of happened at once with the Victorians and I think put that with the industrial revolution and the technology that they had and the travel industry that boomed I think you're just going to get this great mm. big collective of madness that was happening <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a little uh a coincidental tie-in there too with uh Shelley and that she had Percy's essentially mummified heart in her desk drawer when she died. So. Yeah, it's she buried with her. <laughs> huh? It's buried with her. We visited her yeah. grave in Bournemouth yeah. a few years back, and it said, "Here lies the heart of Percy." So, yeah. so, so romantic. <laughs> when I die, rip my heart from my chest and take it with you. <laughs> 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 so, so, so I, saw, I, saw, I saw today on, on one of your feeds, um, Twitter feed, uh, you were talking about uh, Mummy Brown as in painting. And now I know what that is, but there's probably quite a few people that don't. So can you explain that? I've just finished a paper on this so I put a tweet out and I didn't realize so many people were going to be interested in it it kind of shocked me I went in the shower came back and my phone kind of blew up with stuff um again I think it's it's a kind of mummy mania that I think people are still shocked to learn about but also fascinated I mean it still fascinates me it horrifies me as well um but Mummy Brown was a pain and it wasn't just used in the 19th century. It was used quite a couple of hundred years beforehand. And it was the colour that you get from grinding up mummies, uh, actual mummies. And <laughs> artists used to paint with them, whether they realised it or not. I think more pretended not to know than did. But there's quite a few painters, especially just because I've been looking at the pre-Raphaelites, obviously just because 
I'm looking at the 19th century, I've managed to find a few paintings which are definitely painted with Mummy Brown. Um, and it was only in, I think, 1964 that the last Mummy Brown paints uh, tube was made because they simply ran out of limbs. Otherwise, <laughs> they would have continued. So it's not as far away from our own history as we think. Yeah, which... I, I was born in 64, so yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be Mummy Brown one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be appropriate. <laughs> so I, I, wonder, I wonder how many tubes of it are sort of unopened, lying in some sort of attic somewhere. Yeah. Someone replied to me on Twitter, actually, and said, oh, I think I've got a tube somewhere. And I said, oh, an actual tube of Mummy Brown. And they went, oh, yeah, it's somewhere around my studio. I'm like, I kind of want to see it. Like, is yeah. it real? Is it real? Is this actually the thing? Because otherwise that's, I mean, I wouldn't have it in my house. I'm a bit, I'm, I don't know. There's um, a story of Rudyard Kipling's friend, Edward Byrne Jones. Um, and apparently when he realised that he'd been painting with Mummy Brown, he completely flipped out and had to have a funeral for this tube of paint in his garden, um, which I probably think I would have done because, I mean, I don't know what else you're supposed to do. <laughs> Um, it's the Victorians are mad. I'm I'm afraid that I'm the guy who would have bought more canvases personally. <laughs> You'd be damned, Shane. Eternally damned. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd have done to find the person who was doing it and just ask them how they, you know, maybe ask them about their process, but also how they felt or what they thought they were doing when they were grinding up these humans you and know how, how did he come across it in the first place how did yeah. they didn't take a limb and go i'm just going to grind this up and see what paint comes from it i yeah. saw uh thing what the guy who used to be the head of egyptology and or you know whatever in um egypt i can't remember his name my wife knows all these guys she's fascinated with them um Har- Har- or whatever um i saw him open uh sarcophagus one time that had been liquefied <gasps> uh, and i kind of got i kind of have an idea of where somebody might have gotten the idea for mummy brown but mm. uh, i'll not go farther than that it was disgusting but it oh. very <laughs> that's interesting though i mean mummies were used for all sorts unfortunately they were even used for uh, fertilizer and also people used to eat them there was a ancient guy called Pliny the Elder and he's a lot to blame for a lot of things but mm-hmm. if you crushed up a mummy and mixed it with chocolate then it could cure internal bleeding but oh. lots of people died so <laughs> too many people died for that they didn't really <laughs> test this very well people kept dying don't try this at um, home <laughs> no it, is, yeah, it no. is a way of recycling isn't it so, yeah. the ultimate green movement going brown <laughs> <laughs> become a cannibal recycle if, if you have any leftover paint with them i don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh. um quite honestly if somebody out there has a tube of legit original mummy brown you're sitting on a gold mine sell it <laughs> well show us first because i'd like to see it yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> okay so what drew you to the 19th century in particular then what's what's the main attraction with that era oh I have to say it was my love of gothic that kind of got me interested in it first um 
it's kind of cliche, but I was reading gothic and horror far too young. I think like most of us were. I think all the best people do. Um, and I just got more and more involved within the 19th century. And it was really kind of the ethical movement, especially with mummies um, during the 19th century. It was I didn't realize that at the time when I was researching this, it was like almost 10 years ago that I was kind of thinking about this, um, that it predated Tutankhamun and predated Howard Carter. And it w that was kind of the end of the big Egyptomania craze. I didn't realize that there were people before and these people just fascinate me and they are very problematic. They are nightmarish, but their descriptions are very detailed. So they were unhinged and uncensored. And I think that's why I really like them. <laughs> what's the earliest gothic book that you read then you say you started early so what what's the earliest that you would say uh you know what's the earliest gothic for you oh well i read i read vathek and oh the author's name escapes me but that predated 1800 um and that was kind of the gothic that got me into it i'm also a radcliffe fan as well so mm. I was kind of reading them as well um but I mean from an early age myself I was reading a lot of gothic I mean I read I read Stephen King's The Shining at 13 and that was it you, you um, need to tell that you need to tell that story <laughs> well, yeah, I, I yeah I was okay so I was the library kid I was that kid and I could um check out books for people but obviously Stephen King was in the restricted section and I was only 13 so I tried to be sneaky about it and check it out from the library and I was caught <laughs> <laughs> but when my mum found out um she was very very supportive she got me a copy so it's it's her fault <laughs> that I'm into it because I said I really want to read it it sounds really good and she just went yeah go for it my mum's a huge reader as well um her parents who I sadly haven't met because they passed away before I was born they were very big readers so I think it's nice that she passed that down to me um especially with the horror genre as well my mum isn't a big uh, horror fan but she said if you want to read it just read anything that you enjoy life's too short to read stuff you don't want to read so it's her fault. <laughs> well, that came full, full circle, didn't it? With when, yeah. when we were at Chillicon, with you taking that copy of The Shining and getting a certain person to sign it. Not Stephen oh, King, yeah. he wasn't there. <laughs> no, I have one signed Stephen King book, and it's my prized possession up in bubble wrap, like <laughs> at the top, <laughs> at the top of my very tidy shelves, which I tidied on purpose. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got Mick Garris to sign it which was wonderful because I, I loved the Shining TV series that he did. I mean, I've loved a lot of stuff that he did, but that was very special. So he signed my first edition of The Shining, my little very shiny paperback, which is disheveled <laughs> because it's so old. Um, but he got to sign it. So that was really nice of him as well. And he was kind of, you know, smiling all the way through my gibberish of a fangirl that can't quite believe what's happening so it was really <laughs> they were great guys everyone I've met in this horror world has been the nicest person ever um they, yeah it's largely a great group of people you know so you couldn't choose a better industry I don't think for you know for if you're looking for real people that's where you'll find most of them it sometimes seems like I love these people. All heavy metal concerts, I'll say that. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Art and horror writers. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. What I've got okay, going back to the nineteenth century then. There's two there's two sides of the same question really. What are the most appalling features of the nineteenth century for you? And what are the most attractive features? What do you think is the best of the best of times and the worst of times? <laughs> Very <laughs> fitting. Yeah. Oh gosh, it's um it's a tough question because there's so much that I hate to love and love to hate as well. I mean, one of the things that kind of annoys me in a way is, I mean, just speaking about books is I absolutely love Dracula by Bram Stoker. I think it's excellent. But he wanted to prove that he knew everything about land law and <laughs> the estates um, that you have to move. And I'm thinking, oh, OK. Um, and I mean, Haggard was a lawyer as well. And in some of his books, he really likes to make sure that people knew that he was very good at what he did. Um, I think the the waffling on mm. really gets me in some of these narratives and the archaic language. I mean, I read I read Jewel of Seven Stars, which is Bram Stoker's mummy book, uh, not soon after Dracula, and I thought that was so far in advance uh, of what, even though it was you know published within ten years of it. I think it was even less. Um, so the archaic language can get to me sometimes, but I take it with a pinch of salt and I just kind of go on with it. But then I read Blood of the Vampire by Florence Marriott and I thought that was way ahead of its time. That wasn't fluffy at all. Um, so I don't know. W women cut the fluff on that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, as I said, I, I love to hate and hate to love because there's so many aspects that really horrify me of the 19th century but I can't stop reading about them or researching them and they're what fascinates me and I think of it as you know history happened and someone's going to be there to research it that's going to be me and I kind of just get obsessed with I, I mean it's weird if because of Covid and everything I'm, I'm still kind of working from home so the kitchen has become my half office and it's really weird coming down and kind of making a sandwich or something. There's just folders. It's like mummy head photos and, <laughs> and stuff like that. It's like, oh, grave diggers, uh, 1828 to, um, you know, whatever. Year. It, it's very weird uh, in our house. And I mean, even kind of photography, there's been a huge leap in that so far. I mean, I'm looking at a lot of pictures and things and I've kind of become desensitized myself to a lot, uh, which I think a lot of people in my industry do as well. And I have to keep remembering if I'm doing a presentation, I, I usually don't like to include human remains. I have my own stance on that. I do think that that's problematic in itself. Uh, but every now and again, when I've had to kind of speak about it or I'm giving a talk like with someone, I'm always very quick to put the big warning sign on it. And that took a long time for people to do that. Um, so, again, some of the horrors kind of have followed me around and kind of creep up into what I'm doing now, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like, I mean, you're obviously perfectly well suited to what you're doing now. You know, your personality and your website and uh, the pop collection on your shelves behind you. <laughs> and um, you seem to be you seem to have found your niche in life. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad. It. I mean, I've always loved gothic and horror, and I'm really big on mummy ethics. And so, what better career to do this? <laughs> I'm. I'm just a book nerd, and I've made a career out of it. That's kind of what I say. Um, and that's why I started my newsletter. I wanted to kind of combine my two passions of 
looking at the body uh, in art, literature and history, but also kind of move it forward. So I get to publish articles about mummies and I get people wanting to write about grave robbing and things for it. But equally, I get to interview very cool authors such as Beverly Lee. (laughs) (laughs) on her fantastic books and I am still going to rave about the House of Little Bones that just oh that struck a chord with me that was unbelievable (laughs) um so yeah I I love what I do and as I said this is a real treat because I I love to talk to writers this is why I do it that's my favorite thing to do because I love hearing about why people have done what they've done uh why people have written uh, why they write that's the first question I always ask and more often than not I mean I don't know if it's the same for you guys but when I say to people also oh, why, why did you want to write and people said well why not <laughs> it's uh, it's in our blood we were born to do this uh, and I just had a story and I wanted to get it out there I think that's amazing in the course of your studies you you, you sort of read up on a lot of things studied a lot of things is there anything that you've found that you've not seen as a treatment in a story, um, whether it's gothic horror or whatever else? Have you found something that um, you're surprised hasn't appeared yet, apart from Mummy Brown? I was going to say. I was going to say, that's a bit, that needs to be a, a horror story. Uh, someone needs to make it. I mean, I've seen, I mean... I love I love mummy fiction as well. I think it's fascinating. It can be problematic and challenging as well if I'm looking at it from an academic perspective. But if I'm just looking at something um, like a mummy is a monster, like the same way we treat werewolves or vampires or things and this kind of a uh, fantastical being rather than, um, you know, something that actually exists. I really enjoy that fiction, but I do think that there's a limit on what they think the mummy's curse is, especially in gothic fiction. There was a really good book uh, that came out. Uh, it was a British Library series. It was edited by uh, Jeanette Leaf and um, Claire as well. She's over on Twitter. And uh, it was called Crawling Horror. But because Jeanette does a lot on mummy stories, there was a lot of mummy stories, a lot of gothic mummy stories involved. But a lot of the mummy's curse stories don't even feature a mummy a lot of the time it's either someone's robbed something from it or uh, a, i don't know a moth's got into the tomb and done something it's uh, but the actual physical mummy there's there's only a very limited supply of them because they've all probably been turned into paint at that point yeah. um, <laughs> um, so i'd like to see uh more kind of mummies especially in conversation that there's only a very very few that have a mummy actually speaking there's an edgar Allan poe one um mm-hmm. called some words with a mummy but that was written as a parody uh to make fun of all the other mummy gothic fiction so again you kind of have to take it as it's not his best it really isn't it's nothing compared to mask of the red death or anything mm-hmm. or like the vincent it wouldn't be made into a vincent price movie i don't think like he, he stopped well he quickly was ahead <laughs> No, that was one of his stories that had huge potential that did not get met in comparison to some of his classics. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, mentioning Vincent Price, that do you think that mummies have become a little bit of a figure of fun almost? Because you've got, I remember watching the Hammer Horror Mummy, and I just cracked up seeing it come out, and, and then you've also got Scooby Doo, as well. Yeah, <laughs> and it's. It, become very much a harmless creature doesn't it it's, it's not yeah. seen as some the curse side yes you can build up tension and horror with that but the actual mummy itself doesn't seem to frighten anybody anymore 
I mean, Carry On Screaming, which is one of my favourite Carry On films, <laughs> that's got them as well. But again, that makes you laugh that, that it's taken the horror, taken the sting out of it a little bit. Definitely. It's, um, I mean, I, I will admit I have the Scooby-Doo mummy as the border <laughs> on my Twitter, <laughs> on my Twitter <laughs> heading. I, I, I did love the episode as a kid and it, it got, it, it scared me as a kid, but obviously now it's, it's like, oh, okay, that really wasn't scary. Um, I think the one, when I first watched the Boris Karloff one as the mummy, I actually watched Frankenstein, him do Frankenstein first, even though, uh, the mummy was slightly earlier. Um, I think uh, that that scared me, uh, but not necessarily is it being a monster. It was just it was the ambience of the film that was like, this is this is really wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Um, and then obviously when we get Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, <laughs> I mean, that that's just I'm really I don't, it just doesn't have the same effect. And I don't know if there's there's no archetype for a mummy, I suppose where you have vampires, everyone sees the archetype as Dracula, um, and everyone has like the lore around mm-hmm. it. Werewolves, we have specific films with werewolves, even though there's not really one kind of story, it's just like integrated into the folklore. I think with mummies, it's, there was, oh, you know those like ladybird books when you're a kid that you can get, the, the, the mummy story that yeah. they did for that was uh, Conan Doyle's lot number 249, which I think is, it's a good story, but I mean, again, he waffles on a bit. And for a story that isn't very long, there's a there's a lot of waffle. <laughs> um, so and that kind of set set the tone for it. But again, the mummy doesn't speak it. The mummy is a monster is compared to others. It's kind of forgotten. And it's I don't know if it's because it's real that people aren't aren't scared of them. I don't know. It's I mean, I love that scene in the office where they say to Kevin, uh, they're talking about like mummies and stuff and he's like well they're not real and then he just turns to the camera he's like why would a museum put a mummy in it and I think I don't know if that takes it away (laughs) from the fact that they're not scary because they're real or because we don't think that this can happen but I mean I don't know about you the thing that scares me the most about any horror trope any horror genre it's creepy ghost kids and zombies um both of which used to be human but that still scares me so I don't know (laughs) But going back to the, 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 the mummy thing, I think people automatically think, like you say, the Scooby-Doo and the, the, the mummy rising up with the trailing bandages and everything. Um, but if you think about back to the Victorians and them having them in their libraries and their studies and everything, you can make a fabulous ghost story with the fact of just the, the presence of this mummy, either behind glass or on some kind of a stand, and maybe somebody comes in and they notice it's moved a little bit, and you could make a very atmospheric a very atmospheric short story of something that actually doesn't doesn't move it's just there it's the presence of it it's mm. it's all in the mind of the person that's in there it's a very daunting experience as well i mean i found myself alone in a museum uh, room and there was only room for one person to go in and have a look at this mummy at one time because it was quite a small museum um but it was a very slow day and i just found myself alone in there and it was very creepy um it was one of those I didn't think I would be really creeped out by it but there was just at the end of the day you're looking at this corpse lying there and although it was bandaged up um 
also without the glass and everything as well mummies are very dusty they have a certain scent to them as well i mean when victorians were, were going into the tombs a lot of them were choking on the mummy dust and they actually said that they could taste it in their nostrils which i mean it must have been completely overwhelming a lot of people were passing out in these hot tombs as well so i mean that's a horror story in itself the lengths that they went to um so it's a very, as a monster, to me, it would be quite scary just because I've been very up close to them. Uh, but I think a lot of people are, you know, they've been around. If you've been to the British Museum or any of the big museums, they have a very big collection of mummies and you're around people and they're behind the glass. So you read the little ticket and you kind of go, oh, that's interesting and move on. But I mean, to be to be alone, in a, I don't want that to happen again. <laughs> I was I thought if this thing moves or <laughs> I, I hear a scrape or something, I am out. <laughs> what a fascinating idea, though, Beverly. Um, the idea of I think about like um, Annabelle, you know, the doll from the mm. horror from the horror franchise. Um, and then I think about, you know, talk about one one upping the game when when the doll is actually an actual human body standing in the corner of your library. You know, um, that takes a ghost story to a whole new level, I think, I, because I couldn't I couldn't even well, I wouldn't even walk into a room alone with one and be there by myself. <laughs> I admire your courage. Is it just human um, mummies that you've looked at or do you look at? the whole range you know because there's animals that have been mummified as well have they formed part of your study um <clears throat> i i would love to do more work on them um my best friend tessa baber she's been doing things on cat mummies especially because they were used for fertilizer so um she's doing a lot of research in that for me one of the most fascinating mummies I mean, you, you get a lot. Of the, there was a very big discovery in Saqqara not too long ago where they found a mass uh, mummy pit just filled uh, with cat mummies and they were cared for and they were very well preserved. But for me, I'm I'm fascinated by birds, bird mummies, um, and I'm hoping to integrate a couple more into my thesis. It seems like scarab beetles and mummy parts like human mummy parts and cat mummies were the big souvenir trade back then and birds don't make a really big appearance it's mainly cats um that did so whenever i discover something that they're looking at maybe a falcon um or something like that it, it really kind of I don't, i'm fascinated by birds i think they're fantastic <laughs> Thinking about that when Shane was saying, you know, you said oh, a human body in the in the corner of the room, mummified one. I think a mummified bird or other animal would probably creep me out more than a human was because it's more unexpected. You don't you know, yes, you know about the cats, but I didn't realise yeah. they'd done birds. Yeah. So if you had a, a, a mummified vulture or eagle or something <laughs> and that started to move or gave the impression it might move, that would freak me out. Yeah, I mean, I work part time at a local museum, but on the way to it, I have to walk past the window of the taxidermy shop. And I swear yeah. these birds are following me. Right. OK. And this isn't one of those things where you just kind of look in and you say, oh, that's a bit creepy. I swear there's like a couple of birds which turn their head. <laughs> I swear it's haunted. There's something going on in there. Um, but yeah, it would creep me out as well. Um, and also I feel very sorry for them where you see this very small thing which has been cared for um, and very well 
well preserved I feel bad that it's been you know removed from its resting place a lot of tombs are being robbed so it's kind of a where where would they go otherwise but I just feel bad that it this poor little thing has been laid to rest and it's uh, it's been dug up and we can learn a lot from mummies but where do you draw the line um it's mm. one of those things but especially for birds I don't know it, it, it would creep me out if there was if someone just said oh, we've got a mummified I don't know crow over in the <laughs> it wouldn't have been a crow but um just like a, any anything if there was a dead bird that was either stuffed or mummified or anything it, it would really creep me out <laughs> you mentioned on your colors on your side and you were on um in the newsletter mummy unwrapping parties oh they're are, are they actually parties i mean yes. what does that involve i just got this weird idea in my head yeah i mean i would love someone to write a horror story in this because this this phenomenon i didn't realize was such a big thing but trying to find any information on it is a gold mine so i in a society that uh, i'm co-chair of we have um, one of our ambassadors is John J. Johnston, and he's very, very good at uh, kind of understanding mummy unwrapping parties. So what he does now is he tries to replicate them, but he does them with an actual human actor and they get makeup on and everything. But the thing was, they actually were parties. So in the Victorian times, um, a couple of people said that they were for science, but you know the people had to pay a fee to get in um so how oh, science is mummy money um <laughs> science is mummy um but what happened was that they would go to these private residences usually and mummies would be unwrapped in front of the audience's eyes and sometimes if they wanted to take a souvenir home with them they'd just break off a finger or a toe and take it with them but it was it was a party there there is if you google mummy unwrapping parties there is an invitation which pops up that says come and see a mummy that's been unwrapped from ancient thebes and i just can't believe that people would think a that's entertaining um it's like I, I, that's the last thing i'd probably want to see on a saturday night um yeah but it happened so often and uh, it happened in museums as well. They did a big exhibit of it. Um, a really famous guy, Thomas Pettigrew, uh, who was a surgeon, he wrote a book on mummies because he unwrapped so many of them. And that was in 1834. So there was this was two years after the Anatomy Act was published. But he was actually banned from the British Museum for asking for more mummies because they were sick of him like going around and unwrapping them all. So he, he, in in the introduction to his book, he wrote, writes a scathing, well, how dare they? Um, which is, I mean, he's very petty. It's quite, I mean, Pettigrew. I mean, you can't, you can't make this up. Pettiest man alive. It was so funny. Um, but uh, but yeah, these were actual, these were parties that they went to. And uh, it's fascinating, again, horrifying. But yeah, why hasn't that been made into a horror story yet? Yeah, I would love to read something like that. Just, yeah, I was just picturing this body being unwrapped and waiters swanning around with trays of food and nibbles and drinks for people <laughs> while this was all happening. It's just so right. really bizarre. The little collapse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did they get did they get wrapped up again or were the souvenirs taken and they they weren't wrapped up again they were either uh taken off to i don't know underneath the museum underneath the exhibitions maybe i don't know what happened yeah. to them then but at the end of the day it was just probably a very 
kind of barbaric scene. Um, again, you can Google mummy unwrapping parties and there is a horrific image and you see just this. It doesn't even look human or it doesn't even look it doesn't even look like an animal anymore. It, it just um, it's just it's just a pile of bones and bandages. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't believe that this actually happened. Well, yeah, I can't believe it, it was the Victorians. Um, <laughs> nothing surprises me about them anymore. But <laughs> they, they would break off toes. Uh, if they were lucky, they would get a hand. Uh, th- this was going on. I mean, I did read on a blog that there was a child that managed to break off uh, a thumb from one of the mummies and I didn't even anticipate that children would be allowed at these things so that's that I don't I can't confirm that I read it on a blog but I'm researching to see if I can find anything on kids attending these parties I mean oh it's like, it's like, it's like kids going to executions though in the sort of like the 16th yeah. 17th century isn't it it's a slow Saturday night let's go let's see someone get disemboweled yeah, and there'd be pies on sale and all sorts. <laughs> I mean, history is the ultimate horror, isn't it? I mean, yeah, maybe that's why I got into it. <laughs> really, in, in the American West in the 19th and 18th centuries, 18th, you know, 19th mostly, um, it was, uh, yeah, they would have, towns would have celebration days when they were going to do multiple hangings and things like that, and there'd be kids and, you know, families with their basically picnic lunches and things, you know, there to watch people die, you know, (laughs) humanity is, uh, yeah, is way beyond a work in progress. (laughs) But I know we often sort of comment on what people were like back then, but don't you think also that it was, there's sort of necessary stages in our Mm -hmm. development to get where we are now? And then in so many years' time, people look back at us and mutter about what we've been doing or not doing. But again, we have to go through this to get somewhere. We can't condemn people. Yes, we we can condemn them by today's standards, but we've got to keep them in the context Mm -hmm. of their own time. That's right. And I think context is being lost a lot of the time, sadly. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it, I honestly thought it was a universal thing, um, but there were a couple of people who were very against it and were writing out about it. I also think some people were scapegoated at the time that they were like, oh, this was a really bad person from history and they're very problematic. Yes, they were, but who were they employed by? I think everyone was kind of, it takes away from we're all bad as bad as each other. And also colonialism was a huge thing. The mm-hmm. British in Egypt just tore it apart dug it up and shipped it all back home and now it's in the british yep. museum for everyone to see we do look at all the stuff we stole it's on display um so yeah I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of context bound stuff i think and it's a good conversation but i think um people were wrongly scapegoated because as you say at the time it was just seen as everyone was doing it there were people who spoke out about it but equally the people who were employed these people a lot of them were british <laughs> i mean bells mm-hmm. only gets a bad rap uh, for a bad rap that was a hilarious <laughs> um, keep them coming <laughs> oh gosh um yeah he, he gets he, he gets a bad rap but uh he i mean he did oh he talks about in in his diary about how he acts i mean this guy was six foot four and uh six foot foot, yeah i think it was six foot or six foot seven he was he was a huge guy and he was crawling into these tombs and he accidentally sat on a mummy and crushed it and then he talks about heads rolling off and he put his hand through it um 
But I mean, it's great that he didn't admit any of that because now we know what happened. But equally, he he was employed by a British guy, and a lot of his exploits were to try and get stuff for the British Museum. So people kind of leave that out in a lot of places. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was horrendous what he did. It was very problematic. But the people surrounding him were doing the exact same thing. So yeah. as I said, people do, did get scapegoated, especially now when we look back. I think we have to take, as you say, into the bigger, wider context of everything and actually look mm-hmm. at what was happening. Um, so he he was one of the worst ones, I have to say. Um, but, but still, you know. Were there any women um, explorers or archaeologists who went out there that you found? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was. Um, I've done something on Amelia Edwards. She went out there. She published her book, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. She actually omits this from her book, but she met up with another explorer, Marianne Brocklehurst. And Amelia Edwards helped Brocklehurst dig up a mummy in the middle of the night so that they could try and smuggle it back to Britain. Um, so she, so Amelia completely like disregards this in her narrative, and she, she's, uh, she even draws a sketch of a mummy pit, but doesn't include any mummies in it whatsoever. She's very interested in the ancient monuments and stuff. But then equally. Later, when she was doing her tour of America, she published an article and said that, oh, she has two mummy heads uh, that she keeps in her wardrobe and they tell ghost stories to each other. So, I mean, I don't know if it was a publicity thing or <laughs> what, but uh, yeah, that Marianne Brocklehurst, I'm really hoping to go uh, to Macclesfield and see her diary, actually, because I'd like to read it from start to finish. Uh, but there's all sorts and there's sorts. Uh, she also reburied a mummy uh, because it was of a child as well. And she, she didn't like the fact. So she'd be more than happy to dig up the adults. But the, the child mummy just um <clears throat> It kind of maybe questioned her moral, her own morality, or mm-hmm. I don't know. It's um, it's an interesting one, but yeah, women did it. Women explorers did it. <laughs> Do you find um, a lot of that you've come across a lot of eccentrics in your research who were heavily involved in that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the more I read about people, I mean, at, at first I could read something very odd and I think oh that's a bit strange and then the more I read I was like no it's not that strange so at first when I heard that um Haggard had a mummy in his library I thought well that's a little bit odd but then he had everything else in his library and mm-hmm. um <laughs> and his house and there's a really good interview uh, in the Strand uh, magazine by Harry Howe who I think he I would have acted like Harry Howe. He goes into this house trying to be really professional, but he's kind of meeting one of his heroes and he just can't contain himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Haggard's an eccentric one. I mean, you, you get a lot of people. I mean, Wallace Budge, who was working for the British Museum, he was odd in himself when asked about that. He, he worked for a long time there even up to after Tutankhamun's discovery. And, you know, being head of the British Museum, you'd think he'd be rather reserved about the curse, but he just said, I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's a lot of eccentric people. There's a John Sloan Museum, which is near the British Museum, that actually has the sarcophagus of Seti the first, the alabaster sarcophagus, which Belzoni found. Um, His name keeps cropping up. (laughs) Uh, Belzoni actually (laughs) carved his name into it as well. So, oh, over the hieroglyphics, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. 
<laughs> Which is very common back then. Like a collective intake of breath there. <laughs> I know. It was really common back then, though. It was seen as how to claim it as their own. Lots of different countries were doing yeah, it to try to get as many Egypt objects back. So. Their, their flag on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It goes back to the sort of the entitled aristocracy in the Victorian times, or doesn't it? It's like, oh, we want this, so we'll just take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the Victorians for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much what happened. <laughs> Thus, America. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in history, isn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, well, uh, also, I want to make sure that we are talking. Tell us more about um, the. I just saw that you actually take some um, submissions for the anatomy newsletter. I do. Uh, what sorts of things are you looking for from people? I'm looking for everything. I, I, I honestly am. It's one of those things where I put the submission call out and I wasn't sure what I was going to get back Uh, but anything to do with the body in literature gothic uh, horror history art anything so even photo submissions as well Um, and I've got someone sending in uh, a photograph of uh, their sculpture that they're doing which looks fascinating Um, but I I want to publish uh, non-fiction I want to publish fiction as well Um, and if anyone has like a review or anything that they would like to do because I didn't realize when I'd started it that there was going to be so many new books dealing with the body in so many different kind of aspects even I mean the, the latest one that I published was Charlotte Winter's A Love Letter to the Weird and it was how her own struggle Uh, with mental health and what had happened to her helped her develop a relationship with this genre which made sense of everything that was happening to her where doctors couldn't explain it she found a way to explain it for herself it's fascinating read and everything I Mm. publish online is free to read so please go give it a read Um, but that was a thing that I I felt it was really, really good of her to send that in and publish it because I thought it was extraordinary and it was just another level of what reading can do for people it's not necessarily just a pastime I find it a very relaxing pastime but other times when I'm up at 3 a.m because I have to finish a book and I'm scrolling everything over the pages I'm the most stressed out I've ever been in my life um (laughs) but it just adds another layer to the very complex kind of hobby world that we're in um Whereas it can do a lot more than just, oh, I read books. It's like books can help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. I know that they've mm-hmm. certainly helped me out. Um, so it was really it was really nice to, to read that. But I'm looking for absolutely everything. I, I want to read everything. And as much as I love writing for the anatomy shelf, and I will continue to do so, I'm really glad that I opened the submissions because I want other people to mm-hmm. submit and have people read their work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, definitely keep those things coming for those of us. Uh, I, I don't want to say morbid. It sometimes borders on morbid fascination, but um, it's just really, really, there's so much history embedded in the, in, I don't know if you'd call it the trope or the theme or the concept, but yeah. 
No, absolutely. I think so. There is a fascination there. And I think, especially with the horror genre, I'm sure that we're all associated with how morbid horror can be as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there is a fascination there. There's another layer there. And it's what fascinates me. And I'm glad that other people are mm-hmm. interested in it as well. I think it's a big reflection on our own morality and uh, kind of how we can connect more with ourselves as well as mm-hmm. other people, I think. And especially after the couple of years we've had. <laughs> oh, the history books are going to have a fun time in 50 years, aren't they? Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, yeah. <laughs> if history books are written by governments, um, none of them will be telling that damn shred of truth. So. <laughs> Always the case, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So if, if we sidestep now to the, the other side of your hat, which is the, the horror journalism, um, do you think that that's something that you will continue with? Will, will you elaborate on that into more face-to-face interviews? I don't know. It's something I'd never really considered. I mean, even just um, kind of doing more podcasts and things is new for me. I'm, I'm always just writing um i've always just done transcript interviews and things like that i think this is really nice that more people are wanting to talk to me as well face to face and not just oh send them an email with a bunch of questions and they'll come back it's uh, it's something that maybe i'd i'd quite like to do more um probably thanks to you beverly <laughs> which which pushed me to do one of the most incredible moments of my life which was interviewing Brady Hendrix I mean that mm-hmm. how did that even happen I'm not quite sure if you'd like I mean you were there and even I don't know how that happened I just said go over and ask him I just kept push, pushing you look he's there he's, okay. he's not speaking to anybody go and ask him he said he would I mean oh he's such a great guy I was a huge fan of his as well and he I mean my first book of his that I read was my best friend's exorcism exorcism that just completely blew me away um since then I pretty much almost read his entire back catalogue of books um so yeah that was that was incredible and I really enjoyed it and I think people are also more I mean definitely Grady he just wanted to continue talking I and I thought oh this will take five minutes it was about half an hour that poor Beverly was having to hold my mobile phone to record this thing. <laughs> um, so I would have to invest in better equipment <laughs> um, if that were to happen um, like I'd have to get a camera stand I'm not going to make your hands cramp over or anything like that um, but no it was really fun to do and I think I'd like to do a lot more of that and even just um you know speaking as we are now just having like a, a voice recorded interview mm. as well i think i think a it's a, it's a lot more um easier to access i think and i know that i prefer listening to interviews and podcasts and things like that rather than just reading sometimes so it's been an interesting transgression going from me specifically writing kind of my own non-fiction surrounding certain things and reviews and articles about books and people and then actually talking to them I mean it was a it's a huge step <laughs> who would be top of your list to interview then who would be your um, most favorite go on <laughs> I mean it's got to be the king but I don't think that's <laughs> gonna happen um 
I, it's weird. Like the, the three people who I would have loved to have spoken to were was Stephen King, Clive Barker, and Grady Hendrix. So I've got one out of three. That ain't bad. Um, <laughs> I, I'm happy with that. But equally, it's so many other people who I want to talk to, um, and even people who I know very well. I'm just desperate to interview and and, and kind of uh, not just interview about the books, but speak to them about horror i mean i met one of my best friends through bookstagram and that's jack harding and he's under Rocketman reads and his book dark lines has just come out he did write ripper country as well uh, the collection but his collection dark lines has just come out and it's absolutely incredible but what's most fascinating about it is you can see where he's taken his inspiration from and he has just completely rejuvenated it like you can see Bradbury in there you can see King in there you can see everything in there but he's kind of made it and you just feel as if you know this is the next generation of of horror this is this is the next you know one coming up and it's I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how I don't know in 50 years time people are writing books like really influenced by Jack and stuff like that I mean it's insane I mean Beverly for you as well like as I said I read the House of Little Bones but that was after I'd already done the interview with you so now now I just want to talk to you again because <laughs> I have lots of questions and that ending wasn't fair <laughs> oh, it, like, no spoilers but my word that was a yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> so we need to talk about that but yeah I love I love talking to people about the genre why they got into it because everyone has a different story but as I said it has the same sentiment of people love what they do and uh, Grady said a really good quote where he said, you know, for, for horror, death isn't the end. You can do whatever you want with it. And I thought that was fantastic. It, it just sums it up. <laughs> That's why I love talking to people about it. <laughs> I was just um, thinking, could you imagine Grady Hendrix at a mummy unwrapping party? <laughs> I could. With the commentary that he'd I give. Could. <laughs> I think he'd be horrified about it. He, he was very interested when I was chatting to him about it. But I think he'd just be looking at it going, oh, my God, this is horrendous. Why are you doing this? Um, I, I get that and, vibe from him. <laughs> <laughs> but what one suspects also taking notes in the back of his <laughs> mind. <laughs> Maybe for another book. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, Grady Hendrix's next book is about mummies. We know where he got his influence from. Yes, I want credit for that. <laughs> I creeped him out about too many mummy stories. You creeped him out in many ways, didn't you? <laughs> sitting here thinking that uh, you've explained, described all this free time that you have on your hands that uh, maybe you should start a podcast yourself. Oh, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> we, could give, we could give you a million names of people to talk to. <laughs> oh, gosh. I would love to. I'm, I was thinking about it, but I mean, you're the expert, so, and I know how much work goes into editing and, and doing all that work as well it was something that I, w I would love to do I'm thinking about it in the future we'll yeah. see <laughs> I pride myself on having done this for approximately three and a half years now and having meticulously avoided learning what the hell I'm doing over all the time <laughs> <laughs> well I love your podcast I've been listening to it for a long time so you, you could have fooled me <laughs> I we, we just that. wing it most of the time don't we yeah. <laughs> Steph is Steph is the brains of the yeah, group. Steph's our serious one. Oh, stop. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. No, I'm not. I just have a list of questions. I'm trying to sound as though I know what I'm talking about, which I right, don't. Give us a question then, Steph. Come on, let's bring I, it I do have one, but it does go back to the bodies because 
It was something a couple of years ago when we were back down in Southampton, an exhibition was going to appear and it never did, but it was flayed bodies. And it's that one that travels around. I think they're based uh-huh. in Germany. Mm. They've been here uh, twice now. Have you They've... seen it? Mm-hmm. Did you go see it? What do you think of that sort of expi- ex- say exhibition? Because I, I would have gone because I, I was curious. I wanted to see what the I... human body was like underneath. I'm I'm very interested in anatomy and how it works. I mean, for me, I'm mostly bones and bandages, but I'm also really intrigued about nerves and muscles and how how they work. So I think personally, I'd, I'd quite like to see it. I did get the opportunity to go a couple of years ago when I was in Amsterdam. They had the exhibition there as well, and I didn't. And I, I think it's because it was one of those things where I think you could overstep the mark. I think you have to be in the right frame of mind to do it. And I felt, I don't want to remember this trip for doing that. <laughs> um, you would. <laughs> um, but I'd be very interested in seeing it because these the, the people had donated their bodies to mm-hmm. do this. So it wasn't as if they've been dug up or they've left them to science and then something else has happened and they've got a loophole I think there is a very interesting loophole on how they're allowed to display them as well it, it's a very big long tangent but it's very interesting um but I'm I would probably go and see it the one thing that I am going to go see soon is when I'm in Dublin is the St Michaels or St Michens I don't know how you pronounce it uh, St Michens Church Mummies and um, because it's on holy ground, that's how they can be on display. But they're not ancient Egyptian mummies. Mm. They are just, um, I think they are priests who've been mummified by accident due to the natural um, environment of, of where it is. And then I read something on the blog uh, not too long ago saying, oh, unfortunately, since 2017, you can no longer touch the mummies. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> What happened pre-2017? Right. <laughs> um, and appar- but apparently sometimes you can still go. I wouldn't touch them. That's something that's too touristy for me. That's I don't agree with that. But I am really intrigued to go and see them. So, yeah, I would go and see. Um, I think it's Body Works, isn't it? Is that what it's called? Like yeah. the, I, I would go and see it, but I don't think I'd be running around taking pictures. I think I'd just be really I'd be really interested in the anatomy side. Um, of that there's a really great um account on twitter well it, it's a uh, cat who who runs it she's got anatomical cat but she sh- shares a lot of kind of wax work and things and historical things of what happened with the body and um yeah she she kind of comments a lot of stuff on that but no i i i think to actually see them rather than made of wax i'd be interested in seeing them um i I would go so far as to say that it's actually gorgeous. It's a stunning, ex- stunning exhibit. Um, very colorful, mm. but um, it's not for someone like me who has always been really, really appalled by the sight of innards. Um, I was enamored of the whole experience. It was just stunningly beautiful. So. Yeah, wow. definitely, definitely check it out if it comes your way. It's been here twice now. Oh wow! Would you go again? Yes, I would oh, every wow. time. Okay. <laughs> I think I have to go now. <laughs> we, need, we need to find out where it's on next and have a group trip. Train yeah. you to come across. <laughs> yeah. They won't. Uh, generally, they they will not let you take photographs. 
That's so, a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy yeah. about that. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I won't tell you how I know that, but they won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone's managed to sneak something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that was that was my last body question then. I've got one here. It's about what would you what would you recommend as your top ten classic horror reads for people to pick up? What would you recommend them? Do you mean classic as in like the classics or classic yeah. me or let's oh. just say classic in the the originals, you know. Oh wow, okay. Not modern. Okay, okay. Um even ten is so hard. It's choosing ten of my All right. children. Top three. Top three. <laughs> oh God, that's even worse. Um, I don't know. I think, <laughs> Good answer. I think. Oh, it's it's a difficult one as always. Um, <clears throat> personally, I, th- I think Frankenstein is one of the best novels ever written. Mm-hmm. And even and then once I, I read it when I was young, and then I read a ton of stuff on Shelley herself, and then read it again. And every time I read it, I just fall in love even more. I think it's probably my most uh, reread book, bar The Shining. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Frankenstein, definitely Dracula. Um, I don't know how modern you want me to go because I think Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber needs a mention. I think yeah. she's fantastic. Uh, and even her vampires, vampires keep cropping up as well in, in things that I kind of see um, that I really, really enjoy. Obviously, I love Dracula. I think Conan Doyle's really be- I love Hound of the Baskervilles. And I think that's quite funny because it's the one where Watson kind of does all the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite Conan Doyle is that one. Oh, I'm so glad it's, it's my favorite. I think Daphne du Maurier definitely needs a mention. Mm-hmm. Rebecca is absolutely exquisite. But then you could, I love 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Okay, it's not necessarily the most horror talk that you can get, but there is this one of the things I love about horror and gothic, and I was explaining this to Beverly, one of my favourite tropes is this existential feeling of dread that you mm-hmm. get and when you're reading the book and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea really did that for me because I'm thinking they are trapped in a, sumber- a submarine and they can't get out and this guy isn't going to let them leave so that terrified me. Same as Lost Horizon, which is an, it's an unusual one but it's the ultimate Shangri-La and they leave and then horrible things happen but it's, it's that whole... Um, kind of uh, a feeling of isolation I think and it, it's just one of those I love H.G. Wells The Invisible Man that used to terrify me uh Oscar Wilde Picture of Dorian Gray I mean there's so many that you can go through mm-hmm. I mean they are classics for a reason but I, I mean I'm even getting into Charlotte Riddle at the moment I think Wilkie Collins as well The Haunted Hotel mm-hmm. Woman in White I love I love Bleak House as well by Charles Dickens. I didn't think I would, and I actually hated it for the majority of reading it. And then about the the last hundred pages, I've changed my mind, and I don't know why, because nothing major happens in it. I think it just made me think of the novel in a different way. But I think Great Expectations is the best. Obviously, Christmas Carol is fantastic, and we have the Muppets version. How could you? How could you not love that? Uh, there's, there's just so so many. If I had to pick the top, it would be. Frankenstein just purely because there are I 
I don't know why as well they chose it for, I think it was A-level a couple of years ago, they chose it as the text, because how on earth do you narrow down the themes in that book? It's in, I, I, I don't know how they even tried to, I read it at least once a year, and I always find something new with it. I've got so many editions of it, it's become a bit obsessive trying to find nice editions of it, <laughs> especially because a lot of mine were just riddled with notes. And it, it's the only, it's the, it's the book that kind of made me want to take notes within books as well. I've never been one of those people, but then I turned into one of those people. <laughs> You're, uh, I think, the second person in how many weeks now that had that same adoration of that particular book? Two or three weeks now. Heather Heather was also. Mm. Oh. Vassalo. Heather Vassalo of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Bridget's Gate. Oh. Oh. Oh, I love their press. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh. that was that was the top three, ten, however many yeah. classic classic <laughs> horror. What about modern then? Say in the past, I don't know, ten years. Shall we keep it to four? So. Yeah, um, oh, that's you very modern. That's very modern. Well, Beverly Lee is fantastic, and I kept um, kind of raving about House of Little Bones when we were speaking to people because I was like, no, you really need to read this one. It just completely blew my mind. I do think some of King's later stuff I do like. I mean, I love his early stuff. My, my favourite is The Shining and It, and also Different Seasons, if we're on about novellas and short stories. I have far too many editions of Different Seasons just because I love Shawshank. Um, <laughs> and I also love the last one, The Breathing Method, which never gets enough love. Uh, I think that's that's fantastic. But I do like some of his ace stuff. I really enjoyed Doctor Sleep. That's one of my favourites. I completely changed my opinion on sequels altogether. When I first heard about it, I was I was quite stroppy. I thought, I'm not going to read this. I'm really mm-hmm. upset. The Shining is amazing. <laughs> and then it came out and I had to eat my hat. <laughs> um, so I thought that was fantastic. I do like his latest stuff, including later. I thought that was a nice little tie-in as well to it. I thought that was very clever. Uh, there's there's all sorts kind of coming out of the woodwork now though that even new authors as I said Jack Harding he's definitely one to watch his stuff's fantastic I think Junji Ito as well has kind of remodified the whole manga gothic um, mm-hmm. kind of idea uh, but I, the first thing I read of his was his Frankenstein collection so of course I was gonna <laughs> be happy about that. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of looking at all my books at the moment. There's so many. It's very hard to choose. I love the British Library editions that republish the old gothic creepy stories. Um, there's just there's too many. I have too many here. Oh, and Joe Hill, especially. have to mention Joe Hill. I loved Horns. Um, I, I loved pretty much all of his books, but Horns was it was my first Joe Hill. And since then, it's like everything's got to live up to that. I thought that was very, very clever. <laughs> that, that one doesn't get a lot of love, does it? Like if 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 people mention Joe Hill, you, you generally get uh, Nosferatu, uh, Fireman, yeah, Hans very rarely gets a mention. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it was made into a film, maybe really early on, or I don't know. It just kind of has a weird kind of presence about it. I really enjoyed it because it yeah. was a different take on the possession story. I mean, of course. Grady Hendrix, have to mention him. He's just mm-hmm. he's, he's the new king. <laughs> Horns is my favorite, also of of Joe Hill's. Um, I 
Personally, I, th- I think Harry Potter fucked up the movie, but I like the book a lot. <laughs> That's probably why I didn't read it, because yeah. he would appear in the movie. Because I'd read Nosferatu, I'd read The Fireman, I read, is it Heart Shaped Box? Yeah, Heart Shaped yeah. Box. But Love I, that did, I wasn't keen on that, so I went off him a bit. And then there was horns, I thought, no. And then I heard that Daniel Radcliffe was going into the film, I thought, right, no. So I just haven't gone near it since. It's because of that association. I, I don't know why. I suppose I should try it. I did like it. Um, yeah, he was really good in uh, Susan Hill's book that I can't think of the name Woman of. Woman in so. Black? Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked that. A lot of I, people hate I love that. I thought that was yeah. really creepy. And and it, it, it only got a 12 certificate over here for, oh. for the cinema. And I was creeped out by that watching it. <laughs> it should have been a much higher rating. He, I, yeah, I, enjoy, I enjoyed Woman in Black. <laughs> there was a film he was in, and I can't remember what it was called, but my youngest said, you've got to watch it, Mum. And he was in it, and it's, this, it's with this corpse all the time. And I can't remember what it was. It was really bizarre. I can't remember. I just remember him, a corpse, some journey somewhere. And it's just strange. It's, I don't know. It's just. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to look that up. I was going to say, it sounds like your specialty, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the corpse movie? Show it to me. Yeah, it Um, it was on, I don't know, it's Netflix or Prime. It's one of those. And Roman was saying, you've got to watch it, Mum, you've got to watch it, Mum, it's really good. And I was just sat there going, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's just this corpse took somewhere. <laughs> there weren't many other people around, by the way. I just remember <laughs> some sort of strange journey, unless it was a really bad dream. <laughs> Sounds like a really bad dream. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I thought the woman in black that was um I think the film worked because it's very close to the book. I think yeah. one of my other favorites from Susan Hill is I'm the King of the Castle, but no one no one seems to have heard of that book, but I love it. I think it's it's amazing. If you haven't read it, read it. It's it's not your typical horror. It's just two boys and it's a power struggle and it has one of the most shocking endings I've ever Mm. come across ever and that's that's why it makes it horror for me it wasn't until about the last 10 pages and then i freaked out <laughs> i'm writing it down <laughs> talk amongst yourselves <laughs> there are really though a lot of books that don't qualify i mean don't get don't get categorized as horror that are some of the most horrifying books of in all of history that way though just like that, you know, Blood Meridian comes to mind and yeah. Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think horror is subjective. Um, yeah. I think it's what you take from it. But equally, it's I mean, people have said, oh, do you read anything else other than horror? And I said, oh, yeah, well, one of my favorite books, it's not a horror at all. And they're like, oh, what is it? It's like, oh, it's the bell jar. So it's not, <laughs> it's not quite dark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, still still quite dark, but um, but I do love that, and I took a lot from that. I think although although it's not horror, there are certain themes and certain elements that can be taken from it, and and I think a lot of books are like that. As you said, Lord of the Flies, it's not necessarily a horror, but it it's terrifying. It's mm. I mean even the, the I watched the movie before I read the book, and I watched the movie far too young, and it it did haunt me. That that pig's head just oh, it's in my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm the same. I watched that movie with my dad when I was probably 
eight years old or something. And it it was, uh, it took me until I was almost 40 before I read the book because it was just like, nope, nope, I don't want anything to do with that horrifying thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can can understand why. (laughs) But, uh, sorry, I had another question and it slipped away. I'll jump in with one then. We can't can't leave without mentioning The Simpsons. If anyone goes on your website, they'll see a little slot in there for The Simpsons. You have to explain that. (laughs) I have so much love for The Simpsons. I grew up (laughs) in The Simpsons. It was when we didn't have Sky or or like when we were younger and didn't have Sky, it was 6 p.m. Channel 4. Um, after tea, would rush to the telly and and watch it. it. I've grown up on The Simpsons. I grew up on Treehouse of Horror, and it was only kind of recently that I realised how how old The Simpsons was compared to me. I didn't realise that, you know, when I was really really young, there was other stuff coming out that had come out like a decade before. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I watched I watched like the Pet Cemetery. Um, spoof before i actually read the book i think i think the simpsons has a lot lot to to answer for and i love the little horror and gothic quirks that they go through it and i love that matt groaning is such a big horror fan and that they are allowed to take the mickey out of all the things i mean i think the shinning is one of the best <laughs> adaptations <laughs> of the shining apart from the garris miniseries mm-hmm. but I just think it's fantastic and whenever I get the chance to do something about that it's always got a very kind of successful audience from that it's it's one of my most viewed articles and everyone keeps on bringing it up I love it and I'm doing a part two just and I had to rename it from the bloodening because with there's a new midwitch cuckoos uh, adaptation and I I love John Wyndham um I think he's fantastic I love Day at the Triffids I love cuckoos and uh, I just love that the Simpsons actually decided to again do a spoof mm-hmm. of that but they do it really cleverly they I think do. that's what I like about them and they make it nostalgic for people and I think even if you don't like the Simpsons you're gonna love the tree houses of horror <laughs> yeah oh yeah you have to um Matt was born right here in Portland Oregon um I'm moving to the original Springfield here later this year um oh my god yeah, he, he had two different Springfield towns that he based the name of that on, and one of them is here in here in Oregon to the south of us. I'll be living there soon. So. Oh, wow. I take it you're a Simpsons fan as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I don't know if you can see, like, this is one of my favorite pop vinyls. It's, it's the Raven, but it's Bart. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> one of my most prized ones. I love him. I have to find that. <laughs> there it is. We hadn't had our awkward silence. Yeah, we had an awkward silence. <laughs> this was the now. first time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I actually do feel better now. So I'll ask another question. If you had a chance to go into a tomb for the first time, um, by yourself, would you take it? Um, well, I mean, curses terrify me. Whether I believe in all of them is another thing, but I think there's always an element of, oh, it, and I read too much horror to not have an inkling. <laughs> um, if 
I mean, I wouldn't take anything. So if they just thought I was just moseying around, just being a little curious, I hope that they would take pity on me and say, no, don't don't smite this one. Um, but I don't know. I'd, I'd be intrigued by it. I think I would. I, I'd be terrified about what was in there. And especially if I was the only person in there and then I heard a noise. Um, the more I'm thinking about it, the more the more unattractive this actually sounds. <laughs> <laughs> when you think, yeah. go ahead. I was just thinking about the way old houses settle. So you'd be hearing, you know, in an old pyramid or something like that, you'd be hearing sounds all over the place by yourself. I would be dreadful. I could not get that out of my mind. There'd be something. I mean, some people. I mean, in, oh, I keep mentioning Haggard, but he's he writes down everything in his autobiography, and part of me just thinks he really needed another book but he talks about he went into this tomb and a ton of bats like flew out at him and like they were going in people's <laughs> hair and stuff and I'm thinking oh god that's what would freak me out the most and uh, there was another time he went into a pit um into like a mummy pit and um he realized that there were plague victims um buried with the mummies but then yeah. plague spores last longer than a lot of people think they do so he was terrified so started shouting for people to get him out and the sand dislodged and he almost got buried alive so there's lots of things that can happen in tombs yeah this doesn't sound like an idea to be fair <laughs> i think i'm going to change my answer and say maybe not i'm going to go to pass on that one she's busy that yeah. day <laughs> I'll, I'll have a camera go down first and make sure there's nothing there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll go. But I, as long as I have a big burly cameraman to go with me yeah. and film everything. <laughs> it's like Blair Witch Project, but with mummies. Exactly. <laughs> remind, remind me of uh, Kev Harrison's book below. Below. When they go into that cave system with the cam camera lady, and things are down there. <laughs> that was scary. That was. Yeah, that was really scary. And the um, oh, what is it? Is it um, they do one with like the, is it the catacombs or something as well? I can't remember the name of the film. Um, something. I think I don't. I think it might be a German film actually. But the same thing happens. They go into somewhere that they shouldn't, and there's bodies and things happen. And oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> too creepy. <laughs> um. Yeah, I just watched a documentary on the catacombs, and I don't—they're creepy enough without any horror going on down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd be nervous well, about going down. <laughs> so, are you going to write a book on all of this someday? Oh, I'm hoping to. I'd love to turn one of my thesis chapters into um, a book and expand on it because I've got—I've got four mm -hmm. chapters. And I think the third one, which is all about mummy and rollings and grave robbing and things like that specifically, I think that would really interest people. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to. Um, so, and I, I love writing nonfiction anyway, but it would be a bit of a struggle because I, I find it a lot easier to, uh, you probably read it in my articles, when I feel like I'm just chatting to the reader and I can say things. I've just finished probably one of my favorite things I've ever written. Um, it's an article on William Gay and mm. his unfinished fiction stories, which, mm. oh, it was just, 
it was really wonderful to write and I didn't realize how personal it was going to be when I was writing it so it's it's having to change that into a very academic head I have to put a different hat on and think right I've got to be professional now I can't put any puns in this um I have to make sure I've got my references correct and all the little ellipses are in the right places so I, I would love to do it but I, I'm hoping I can make it a little different to my thesis and make it a little bit more not a general interest but make it more easy for people to read and access because I really hate the archaic words as well that we <laughs> have to keep using and the professional terminology as well um so yeah I would love to do that and just kind of chat about mummies that would be fantastic <laughs> I'm gonna um I'm gonna look up that William Gay article that's a, a favorite author of mine oh wow well it's coming out very soon i'll send you it before it's published if you like i hope i really hope you like it it's uh, that would be lovely there's a new collection coming out called stories from the attic and it's about his unpublished short yeah. stories it's got fragments of his unfinished works as well and also some of his memoirs and it's got a note on the manuscript which was lost during his lifetime but they found after his death so it's nice. this this collection's unreal Sweet. when they have when it was it's by Dzank Books they sent it to me and I was just over the moon I think I screamed a bit when I opened it because <laughs> I love William Gay I think he's phenomenal amazing <laughs> um that's a hell of a publisher too I love those guys mm. um I think a lot of what most of William's books maybe are through them now I don't remember for sure I but I think that's the publisher um hell of a writer um hell of a you mentioned his memoirs um he was all he was another non-fiction writer who was really 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 good at what he did so but i'm babbling i wanted to make sure that steph and bev and you all get a last word in here so i'm going to shut up and no. if you have more you want to share with us that we have not covered please do so I'd just like to say that Steph has a book out on, or she has had a book out on the 16th and she ought to give it a plug. Go on, Steph. Yes, I agree. Hey, which one? Metallurgy. Oh, Metallurgy. That's yes. what... <laughs> that one. Sorry, just, it's just there's some other books that have come back out that weren't, that were oh, out, disappeared yes. and came back out. Paused so, came back too. Yeah, paused came back out. So Metallurgy, if you like metal, and if you like poetry, it's found poetry based on metal lyrics. 200 tracks condensed to 100 poems, a bit of behemoth, corn, slipknot, all that in there. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's me. <laughs> oh, wow. OK, well, that's going in the newsletter, the blog, everything. I want to <laughs> read that. That's fantastic. Uh, oh, and there's a, there's a soundtrack. This was Shane's idea, but there's a playlist over at Spotify. So I managed to get, I think, about 96 or so of the tracks or 196 of the tracks on there for people so to listen clever. to so there's there's a lot of that it is more modern it is more recent metal rather than the classic because someone else was going to do the classic side but if you like death metal industrial a little bit of um, gothic industial then yeah Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very cool cover as well who did your cover again? oh that was what wayne fenland he yeah. came up with that yeah, and then real. i tweaked it a little bit and uh, we came with that. He's very good. He's very good for covers and things as well. So. Yeah, Wayne did our logo for Dark Fusion, didn't he? Ah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a combination of him and I. But yeah, the the part that is most 
talented as Wayne all the way. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Steph's book, uh, you guys definitely pick that book up. Um, it's fascinating. It's it's a great book. It's got an introductory poem by another friend of ours, um, Cindy O'Quinn, who is a yeah. hell of a talent herself. Um, and there's just nothing but good about this book. Um, uh, I'll be reviewing. I'll be reviewing it in a couple of days. But <gasps> wow. just to say, so. <laughs> Thank you. That's my plug. I can't, I can't plug anything I'm reading by Beverly Lee right now, so I'll just shut <laughs> I'm waiting on my chapters, Beverly. Yes. Yes. My historical advisor on a certain couple of chapters. <laughs> take your time, don't worry, I'm very excited. <laughs> so um well, I think that covers it for now because I am out of time and I'm blind and I'm my eyes are tired. So <laughs> I'm going to disappear. Uh, it has been amazing having you on. And when you start your podcast, we'll be happy to be your first guest. <laughs> I will hold you to that. <laughs> yeah, and I'll buy your book. It's really good. Well, I'm getting yours. <laughs> Lovely talking to you all. Um, this is one of the more fascinating conversations I've had in recent times, and I'm made better for it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. It's been lovely. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Take care, all. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs> Yeah.